0: Hello, hello. Welcome to this week's NTT20 podcast, The Monday Pod. George Ellick is on the line with me, Ali Maxwell, and we're talking all things EFL. What was a heavily reduced slate in League One and League Two, particularly thanks to various frozen and or waterlogged pitches. Can you be both at the same time? Yeah, I think you probably can.
1: Uh, 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 mm, mm, I mean, I wouldn't say
0: maybe, maybe, I guess so. Someone let me know. Uh, I'm sure we've got some grounds people who listen to the pod. George, uh, you spent your Valentine's Day Sunday with your one true love, Oxford United on iPhone.
1: <laughs> yes, I did. It was interesting for Oxford fans um, waking up on Saturday. It was on Saturday, it might have been on Friday. We were told that actually the game was going to be on Sunday. So having to tell our, our other halves that uh, that maybe Valentine's Day wasn't going to be as billed. Um, and then the game being postponed from three o'clock to four o'clock and then there being a fire in the floodlights at halftime, which meant that a Saturday three o'clock kickoff ended up ending at about seven o'clock on Sunday evening with the kind of four hour match, match day, I follow experience. So, um, yes, it was interesting. We got the win in the end. I doubt we're going to talk about it because it wasn't a very good performance from Oxford, What I will say though, so we don't graze over it completely is that if I was a Wigan fan, I would be feeling pretty hopeful. Of, of my chances of survival because they were very, very good uh, for times and probably deserved more out of the game. Look,
0: guys, we, we've got a, a great show today because although we had a reduced slate of fixtures, we have uh, hooked in probably our favourite ever guest, potentially. Uh, it's Conor Harahan of Swansea City, on loan from Aston Villa, of course. He joins us a bit later on in this episode to discuss uh, moving to Swansea during a pandemic um, what an amazing start he's had, being involved in a, a championship promotion race and and much more as well. It was great to chat football with Connor, an absolute student of the game uh, who loves loves chatting football. So uh, as you guys well know, uh, someone who we have admired certainly that left peg for a long time. So it's brilliant to have him on the pod. Our chat with Connor is around the thirty five minute mark. If you want to skip ahead to that, but we will get through some weekend action now, starting in the championship, George, where. There were, I'd say, plenty of important scores at the top of the division, but we've got to start with a 6-0. When there's a 6-0, I think you've got to start with it. Watford 6, Bristol City 0 in this case, which I think was a, a delightful surprise for Watford fans who haven't been too enamoured with their recent performances and probably not a great shock, George, for Bristol City fans who have been even less enamoured with their recent performances.
1: Yeah, um, you know, for any Watford fan... Um, I doubt many have really given much thought to the fact that this was probably as much through the Bristol City as it was to do with them, but understandably so. I mean, at least for Watford, there was a clear possible reason as to why this happened because they shifted to a 4-3-3. Andre Gray and Troy Deeney didn't start. They started with three players in Ken Semmer, Ishmael Assar and Joao Pedro, who I'm not sure have all started together as a three for, for a long time. Um, or at all this season, given they've been playing 4-4-2 for the most part. And it was those players who stole the show. I mean, Tsar seeing lots of people saying, you know, the shackles were off him today. I mean, you have to caveat it by saying they came up against the Bristol City side who have been dominated like this in previous games. They may not have lost games 6-0, but, you know, the the shot count of 17-4 is a pretty familiar one because Bristol City have consistently, over the last few weeks, and couple of months have struggled to create chances and have been pretty porous at the back. And when you add to that, the injury woes that they're currently experiencing, it's not a massive surprise. There are so many issues, so many issues with, the, with this Bristol city. Um, just everything about their performance from individual errors, from Viner, from Masengo to just a complete lack of defensive shape to an inability to really create much Um I'm pretty surprised that Dean Holden is still in charge there we know that the owner is a pretty patient guy and you know he he's stuck by Lee Johnson during some some pretty shoddy runs in the past as well and, and maybe given that they are still mid-table, given that we are still in a pretty insecure time financially, he's taken the view that now is not the time to pull the trigger, especially when any new manager would still be coming into a side completely depleted by injuries and confidence as well. Um, but for Watford, it doesn't really matter that that's the case. It doesn't really matter that they've beaten probably the worst side in the championship at the moment, because this will give them a totally new... Um, idea of how they can dominate this league. You know, players like Saar and like Semer and like Pedro and Will Hughes and Tom Cleverley are now in a position where they've underperformed for so long. And I'm sure Chisco, the the manager, has has been at a loss to explain why he's been unable to get a group of quite clearly technically gifted players into putting in an attacking performance. Now he's done it. And hopefully, you know, they will be caught up on this wave. Hopefully for them, they'll be caught up by this. And we'll be able to replicate similar performances both midweek against Preston and at home against Derby. My only concern is that we've seen something fairly similar once before that they went and beat Preston 4-1 at home earlier in the season. And we thought, ah, is this it? Mm. They then drew with Forrest 0-0 and then were beaten at home 1-0 by Cardiff. So proof will be in the pudding. Um, bit All eyes on, on Deepdale midweek. Brentford lost 2-0 to Barnsley on Sunday. I was absolutely delighted to
0: see Barnsley um, pick up a win after what was, I thought, one of the most magnificent performances by a non-Premier League side against one of the big six uh, yeah. Premier League sides that I've seen for a long time. I was so enthused by the way that they played and felt bad for them, really, that they that they didn't get anything out of the game. Um, and to, to follow it up three days later, or less than, really, given they played on Thursday night uh, and Sunday lunchtime, to follow it up with the same intensity... Um, putting pressure in exactly the same way on another side who are a good footballing side and this time getting the win Um, really really impressive and previously we've noted how against the top sides in the league Barnsley they've been picked off you know they don't change for anyone they play this high intensity high pressing helter-skelter style and it's it works so well for them that, that they are a, a really good side in this at this level but they have struggled against the big sides but that wasn't the case here they're improving in their sort of defensive transitions I think and Brentford of all teams at this level are about as good at attacking into space on the counter as any and they didn't really trouble Barnsley in that sense Godos and De Silva both had decent chances but that's the most notable thing for me if if Barnsley can tighten up even you know 20% on, on defending on the counter and on cutting out individual mistakes at the back. I think, out of this group of teams that we now have, nine teams outside of the playoffs separated by just three points, which starts with Cardiff in seventh and ends with Luton. I think, if, if you put me on the spot now, I would have Barnsley most likely to finish at the top of that group based yeah. on their recent displays, based on what I think is their highest possible performance level. And if they can raise the floor... By what I've just said in in terms of tightening up a a couple of tweaks, then I'm all for it. Like, does that mean I think they'll make the playoffs? Probably not. You know, you'd need a Bournemouth, a Reading, a Watford, or obviously one of the top three to completely implode, and and that doesn't seem too likely. But hugely, hugely impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's one part of, of Barnsley's performance. Now, we know that they press we, we know that's what they do and under Ishmael, if anything that kind of pressing mentality has only increased and that was what was incredible about the way they played against chelsea who under thomas tuchel especially have been incredibly good at controlling games in opposition's halves we, we we saw burnley come out and press chelsea in a very similar way and slowly chelsea ground them down and ground them down and then by the able to break down that press and then control the game in burnley's half <sighs> We saw what Barnsley did to them and prevented them from doing that at all. But normally, I always think, maybe kind of with a betting hat on as well, when clubs like Barnsley have taken on a Premier League side like that and put in a display like that, you can often see a bit of a bounce because completely understandably, it would take a hell of a lot out of your players to spend 90 minutes pressing world-class players consistently and then coming off on the losing side. If if you go on to who scored, who have you know a brilliant EFL coverage across Championship, League One, League Two for for all stats-based things, and you go to the pass map for Brentford Barnsley, it is unbelievable. You know Brentford dominated possession as we'd expect. They attempted 450 passes to 275, but the distribution of those passes is absolutely incredible. There are all, almost as many touches of Brentford touches in their own box as there are in Barnsley's half and that's despite Barnsley going one nil up after 13 minutes to show that uh, ability not to drop off to keep that intensity and to completely prevent Brentford from having the ball in a central dangerous area there is basically a hole in, in, you know, in between the centre circle and the penalty box in the middle of the park where Brentford just weren't able to get on the ball, weren't able to get the likes of De Silva, of Godos, on the ball in positions to be dangerous. It's incredible as an off-the-ball performance goes, especially due to game state. And if they can maintain that, especially after putting in the shift they did against Chelsea, then I completely agree. I think teams are going to really struggle to live with them.
0: Small apology there for anyone who heard the screenshot noise. Uh, That was me screenshotting what George was talking about, the Brentford uh, pass, map because it is remarkable and I'm going to tweet it off uh, NTT20pod. So thank you, George. That is uh, an okay. a- excellent analysis. But yeah, I think a lot of people would have been a little confused. I can't edit that out because it's coming through the same channel <laughs> uh, as you are. Uh, at the very top of the table, uh, Brentford were replaced by Norwich on Saturday. They played on Sunday, of course, but Norwich are there still after that result. A 4-1 win against Stoke, George that basically could barely have gone better. After a, um, a well, after a poor week, right, uh, or a, a poor two weeks, um, Tell that
1: to Kenny McLean. Poor, I mean,
0: uh, <laughs> a poor one, a run of run of results. Wait, is it McLean or is it Yanulis who made the bigger mistake? Janulius was the one that ended in a goal.
1: Yes, I mean that is true. I think Yanulis is is almost more understandable because it's just a really you know you're you're always taking a risk when you're playing a, a passing side from where he was. For for Kenny McLean, if you haven't seen this. Watch it because part of the there's a there's an angle that's shown on Quest where it's from behind the Norwich goal and you can you can literally see McLean playing the pass through to Fletcher, who is is he's not even like he's hiding in plain sight he's like clearly there and straight away McLean you can just see him being like oh my god what have I done like he can't even justify it and he puts his hands in the air and somehow. Uh, Fletcher misses it but you are right this for Norwich was back to their best Um, they were irresistible really Cantwell was such a lovely goal to open open it Buendia was probably the class act throughout he missed a very very good chance to open the scoring but made up for it with a lovely left footed finish Timu back in the goals as well Um, a little bit perturbed to see that Oliver Skip played 10 minutes of football when it looked like you know we're not medical professionals but uh, he looked like he thought he was in a, in a pub having a chat with Tim Krull after the um, incident rather than on a football pitch. Um, so fingers crossed he's okay. Uh, and nearly one of the own goals of the century was came after that pull um, from Kenny McLean where Fletcher rolls it, Krull saves it and uh, Grant Hanley so nearly just rolls it into the corner um, but luckily it goes just past the post. Um, yeah, a, a big win for Norwich and I think any... Expectations that this Stoke side are going to be anything but mid-table fodder are, are, are slowly vanishing because they have been poor now for a while. And if anything, it's getting worse.
0: Winless in eight for Stoke. Uh, if you stretch that further, one win, eight draws, four defeats in their last 13. The, the amount of draws in there reminds me a little bit of the run that Millwall went on, um, which ended not that long ago, um, where again, it's they're playing games on such low margin. Stoke, rarely dominating them, rarely being dominated in them, that it sounds so basic to keep going back to Tyrese Campbell's absence. But the the evidence is, is pretty compelling. Um, in all competitions with Campbell, they won nine, drew three, lost three. And without him, won three, drawn 10, lost seven. And there's obviously more at play. There's more to it than one player. He's not the only player out injured, for example. But I think when you play games on such low margins, when you have someone like that who from what we can see, anyway, at this level is too good in the final third, too much quality. Whether it's in terms of shooting or creating, as the case was as well, um, that was probably more often than not turning a draw into a win or turning a loss into a draw. And 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 that you can kind of see that coming through now with the numbers. Um, and it's something that that they need to work on. Like we've never been enamoured with a Michael O'Neill team going forward particularly as a, as a really fluid attacking side and that's what they need to achieve if they're going to reach you know if they're going to reach the next level if they're going to be a um, a playoff side either this season or, or next as for Norwich yeah I mean what a Norwich-esque goal it was to get them started that that little backfield one-two Campwell Vrancic back to Campwell was magnificent you had Buendia being Pete Buendia A scrapper and a creator, all in one moment uh, to set up Puky for a goal. Then scored a marvelous goal of his own, probably an underrated goal to be honest. Weaker foot, first time half volley, Um, absolutely brilliant into the far corner, and then winning a penalty as well for Puky to score. So um, good bounce back from Norwich. Got a couple of games to whiz through now, George. Uh, Reading one, Millwall two. Um, Struck me as quite a. A good game actually quite an entertaining game and quite a, a close game both teams having chances and actually it was notable to me how you know it was unusual that Reading didn't take their chances because that's something we've kind of got used to this season in a tight game, Luca Schau oh, scoring a oh, they,
1: one-on-one, right? They, they, got, they got their fortuitous early goal though, which maybe is, is, was a thing of the past for Reading.
0: They did score a remarkable goal through Semedo, <laughs> who's basically, it's a bit like a couple of years ago, Michael Doyle scored a goal for Coventry where he was just trying to absolutely launch the ball. You know, it was basically a 50-50 that he was trying to punt into the stands and it caught the wind and flew in. And uh, that's pretty much what happened here with Semedo, I think. But Millwall, fair play. They've shaken off that poor run of form um three wins three draws in their last six uh things are looking up certainly that's back-to-back wing wins now um and you know contributors outside of jed wallace is is what we've wanted to see from them um i don't think they've achieved that consistently so i'm not getting carried away but good performance from mason bennett nice winning goal uh, malone's been brilliant in the last few weeks hasn't he from left wing back so they seem to be moving towards being that Millwall side that we recognised from early on in the season I don't necessarily think it means they're going to go on on some crazy playoff tilt but a, a, a brilliant comeback win against a, a Reading side who who should have been ahead when Joao well not that maybe that's harsh but you, you normally expect draw to finish those chances uh, what about Cardiff 3 Coventry 1 I feel like uh, as much as we're loving Big Mick and Kiefer Moore's um, partnership at the moment and Moore's First goal, the skill and finish was absolutely sublime. I thought you had some really interesting things to say about Coventry on the Totally Football League show Extra Time on Thursday. Some concerns that maybe had, had kind of crept up on us and this performance won't have done anything to quell those concerns.
1: Yeah, um, their fixture list is is hellish, basically. Um, and the form has been trending in a downward direction before this run of games. You know, they came into the, the Cardiff match winless in three um, dropping points against Birmingham, uh, losing to Forest and then and then drawing Niddle against Watford in what was a, a really good display. You know, we have to say that they were, they were brilliant against Watford. In part, I think we have to put that down to a very, very poor Watford performance as well. I don't think it was necessarily Coventry forcing Watford to be poor. I thought they were totally stale that game. And I, that was seemingly the, the performance that caused Chisco to, to change things up on the weekend. Um, but that means they've now taken two points from their last four. They lost the two games as well previous to, to beating Sheffield Wednesday 2 0. They've started trending down towards the relegation zone. Their next few games, you know, if you look on Wednesday, they've got Norwich at home. Then on the weekend, they've got Brentford at home. So they're. Whilst it's two home games, remember they're they're not really at home, they're at St Andrews. They're playing first and second in the league. After that, midweek next week, they go away to Swansea. So they're playing first, second and third in the league in a row. It then gets a bit easier, but you've got Blackburn and Borough, two sides chasing the playoffs up next. Then follows Derby. Derby, one of the form sides in the league at the moment, who, despite their lowly position, aren't a side who are one of the worst in in the league under Wayne Rooney. So that brings us to the 13th of March where they go to Rotherham in what will be unless Rotherham do something extraordinary or to be fair if Coventry completely belie their their recent form and, and take loads of points from those games. It's going to be a massive massive fixture and it's it's pretty hard for me to see especially when we've got teams towards the bottom picking up points fairly liberally, certainly with, with Wednesday, Rotherham, I mean Birmingham and, and and Wickham are clearly the two the two in trouble. Coventry are currently just 3 points ahead of Sheffield Wednesday. I'd be surprised if Coventry aren't in the drop zone going into that game against Rotherham. So I guess it's expressing concern about Coventry, not necessarily anything to do with Mark Robbins, not to do with their players or even necessarily their performances. Just the quirk of the fixture list means that they, unless they do something special over the next couple of weeks, are going to be playing catch up. And that's difficult to do. And we know how hard it is for teams who get promoted from league one to, to stay in the championship. So, um, yeah, it, it, I guess it's just crept up on me a little bit. Having thought that Coventry were doing a, a great things in the Championship, having thought that Mark Robbins was doing a brilliant job, which he is, relegation is still, um, yeah, I, I'd say looking more likely than not, despite what the bookmakers may say.
0: Friday night is, is,
1: is, is that a rare tip on the on the Monday show? <laughs>
0: Maybe <laughs> I'm ignoring it. I'm ignoring it. Uh, Friday night uh, we watched Blackburn lose two one at home to Preston. Uh, And it was. I'm going to ask you about Blackburn in a second because I know you had some thoughts off the back of that. Um, I want to give some credit to Preston North End first and foremost. I should say back back to Cardiff. Three wins in a row now. You have to say a brilliant start under Mick McCarthy. The way that they're going about things isn't a surprise to anyone, and probably nor should be the fact that they've turned things around in the short term. Um, They're now at the you know they're in seventh. They're at the top of that group of nine. I think that there's a bit of a theme to their best performances of the season which of which Saturday was probably one of them that big win against Luton and Huddersfield and Barnsley as well when they've just been stronger than the opposition when they've the first and foremost they've just won the sort of initial physical battle and uh, that was certainly the case on the weekend as well in terms of Preston beating Blackburn Alex Neil switched to a, a 3-5-2 and it paid off here the, the first goal certainly a, a good evidence of that a big switch from right wing back to left wing back Cunningham um, all on his own on the left-hand side, the the, the central attacking players occupying Blackburn's back four, uh, back Blackburn's right winger obviously not tracking Cunningham, the left wing back, and it was a magnificent finish as well. I think the most important thing here, not to forget, was an unbelievable save from Iverson um, to keep this to, to keep Blackburn at bay. Um, just a, a brilliant, brilliant piece of reflexes uh, from close range, and I think just I think I spoke about Preston last week when they'd had a disappointing defeat, and I said. I think from now to the rest of the season, they're going to beat teams where you're not sure that they're that they're favourites to win, and they're probably going to have some poor performances again in games that you might expect them to win. You know, six of their starting eleven had started less than ten games this season, which shows you the lack of continuity that that Neil's working with. But with a win that included a tactical switch that paid off. Just reminded me why I like Neil as a manager and why I think Preston are, are, are lucky to have him to be honest so I'm looking forward to seeing what this new iteration of North End will look like over the next year or 18 months I hope that Neil is at the helm to oversee it because uh, I, I just find them an interesting club I know that they uh, that there's a lot of frustrations uh, from the fan base about the players that leave uh, and quite often the, the recruitment that, that comes in to replace them but um, yeah I, I enjoy I uh, enjoyed this win for, for North End George of course Rovers were heavy favourites Um, And they they didn't deliver. And it feels like we're saying that quite a lot at times.
1: Yes, I was really disappointed um, with this performance in kind of every aspect, I guess. Um, Give Preston credit because they were were very, very good, especially first half. Well, I mean, actually throughout, because first half they were aggressive. They forced the game to be played in Blackburn's half. They were fairly direct, went on the ball, um, but were, were quick to press Blackburn as well and, and wouldn't let Blackburn play their game of making the pitch very, very big and, and being aggressive out of possession themselves. Second half, it was a totally different game where Preston was suddenly happy to drop in and deploy a low block and restricted Blackburn to basically no chances. They didn't really fashion anything. So many balls into the box high towards Armstrong that were easily dealt with. Um, it was a bit of a tactical masterclass, I guess, from Alex Neal in, res- in that respect. But um, it just felt, for Blackburn, like a complete lack of understanding about how to impact the game. It was so frustrating to consistently watch the ball shifted out wide in the second half and then crosses put in the box and headed away. Time after time, you have good ball carriers. Why not deploy them through the middle? Try and make some inroads into that into that low block by carrying it through the middle rather than being forced out wide the whole time. And again, n- not for the first time watching rovers. It just felt like they were worse than the sum of their parts. It felt like you're watching a side. I mean, I- I'm personally not a massive fan anyway of managers who who stick loads basically when you're when you're losing a game, just put all of your attacking players on the pitch and, and hope for something to happen. And that's how it felt towards the end of this game, where we had we had I think Brereton was the last sub to come on. We had Brereton, Elliot, Dolan, Armstrong, um, Dak. Um, I think that was it. Yeah, all on the pitch at the same time, it, um, and, and it didn't really work. And I, I am, I'm a fan of Tony Mowbray. I've I've always said, you know, this is he's somebody who seems to get more than the sum of his parts out of players. But I I now wonder if if maybe the job has has developed beyond him. Um, I wonder. I wonder if he is a manager who's very, very good at taking players, you know, and, and and forcing them to get more out of their talent, as we've maybe seen in the past, whether or not he's necessarily the right man to take this group of quite clearly very good technical players and elevate them to a level where, you know, I've been fairly impressed by how he's managed to implement a style of football on them, but it's not winning games. You know, it, it, even if they do manage to control the ball well and, and fashion good chances, they are still are uh, uh, too often giving chances away to the opposition and don't tend to to dominate games in the respect that you'd expect. So, you know, I'm a fan of his. I'm happy to to see what happens. But with this group of players, I don't think there's any excuse for them not to be doing far better than they are at the moment. And pretty soon, I guess, the fingers are going to start pointing to the man in the dugout.
0: There's a big, long read on the Athletic site, our sponsors, uh, about... Blackburn, Uh, Tony Mowbray, kind of the main character, part of the article and kind of the way that it's framed is about how they have attracted or persuaded some of the bigger clubs in the Premier League to send them talented young players, be it Liverpool's Harvey Elliott, Everton's Jared Branthwaite, Manchester City's Taylor Harwood-Bellis. But it, it is a really interesting piece, I suppose given our disappointment at Rovers' performances on Friday, it's almost like the wrong time to read it because there's a lot of really positive stuff about the the culture around the club, the atmosphere around the place, Mowbray's own reputation as someone who uh, really develops young players not just on the pitch but is just a a really good person to manage them as human beings as well at a a really crucial point in their careers it's a brilliant brilliant piece I must say um, and I would recommend going to read it of course if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic but you'd like to become one well we've got just the code for you um, theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 uh, gives you a very, very nice discount on your annual subscription. Uh, costs you just around two quid fifty a month for the year, which um, you know is excellent value. Some brilliant writing on there. Um, we're going to talk about another piece that's up on site later on in this pod. Uh, George, do you want to talk about Derby two Borough one, or do you want to talk about Birmingham nil Luton one?
1: Um, I'll talk about. I mean, neither. A- a grabbing my attention Shall take... why don't I talk about them and then you, you can
0: do a good bit on huddersfield Wickham, which was a big one lovely yeah so Derby beat Borough 2-1 um, a, a tactical battle A tact- uh, sorry a tactical victory in some sense from Rooney because we got used to seeing them play 4-3-3 pretty much under him and that's worked very well certainly from a defensive standpoint um, but he switched it up here, 4-4-2. Four, four, he went with Gregory up with Colin Kazim-Richards. And Kazim-Kazim absolutely loved it, by the way. <laughs> um, he was thriving with with someone alongside him, physically dominant again. Uh, he has been a revelation, you have to say, since joining. Uh, and Gregory scored on debut. Kazim-Richards scored an absolute thronker as well. Uh, and Derby would tune up in this game. And, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. You know, Rooney, I don't think he's ever going to... Uh, try and, and pretend to be some great tactician but this is showing the sort of pragmatism that that wins you games um where otherwise you might not maybe it was dictated by a poor pitch maybe the personnel that he had available to him quite possibly middlesbrough's own strengths uh, and trying to counter balance them so going much longer than they would normally go much more direct uh, worked really really well and, and that was kind of the difference as well as kazim richards is brilliant individual performance and his excellent goal as for Birmingham nil Luton one it's hard it's like hard to get past Birmingham being so poor at the moment I want to give Luton credit here you know it's an away win where they showed great organization where they won the battle I suppose in that sense and and I just don't want to get too overexcited uh, Lutontown analytics which is a brilliant Twitter account covering uh, Luton said the most scrappy and boring three points will win all season so I don't think I'll be (laughs) criticised for not going much deeper for Birmingham it's a continuation of what we spoke about last week that's now one win in god knows how long 12 games I think potentially Um, and it's not like that poor Stoke run or the poor Millwall run where there's a lot of draws in there either they are generally losing football matches and the problems are at both ends of the pitch so real concern I've been to be honest with you, George, I've been surprised that Karanka hasn't been a little bit more lively in his in his press conferences and and, yeah. and and falling out with people up to this point. But it was notable on the weekend. He's digging out his players, wasn't he? I can't understand why they're playing like this, basically, um, whether or not he's right. And the players are putting in horrendous performances. Uh, it's not a great look and it's not a great sign. So um, Birmingham now very much with it, with work to do. They are in the relegation zone Um Teams around them have games in hand. So something has to change pretty swiftly. Otherwise, Birmingham will be relegated to League One. Um, and you have to say they've flirted with it for a number of years. So I'm sure if that happens, we can do a, a big old deep dive on exactly what's gone wrong there. Uh, and then that big one at the at the bottom, George, uh, literally at the very bottom, Wickham, um, were 2-0 down to Huddersfield as half-time approached. And they left with all three, didn't they? 3-2. What a... What a marvellous, marvellous win this was for a Wickham side that, uh, I mean, they they were struggling to pick up wins, it's for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing here is that it was deserved. And how often have we said the Wickham have deserved a win and not come away with it? Um, and that's why I think this is such a big result for them, because it'll give them, I mean, I, I can assure you that even though you and I have probably written Wickham off, to, to relegation uh, and even though most people following the EFL probably have too they have not you know they fully believe that they are still in with a shout you look at the table now they're 10 points off safety and wins like this you know roping back someone like Huddersfield a, a team who you know can't win is so important to what they're trying to do and they were good value for it I mean they were not particularly good value for it when they went 2-0 down a Huddersfield side who um Know, have really been struggling for form um, to get ahead early like that. But they we're seeing certain players proving now that they can be issues. I mean, Uchek Pezu may not have the aerial dominance of, of Bayouac and Fenway, but he certainly offers a little bit more mobility. He's got very, very good feet, which we saw for the second goal and we saw for both of his goals against Brentford previously. We're seeing again, Horgan Horgan's direct running can be a massive, massive benefit to them. Memeti, who scored the first goal, is an incredible bit of scouting because you know he was a, a Norwich youth player who was released and then signed for a, a non-league side I can't remember who they were I think maybe Woodford um in uh last year and then was picked up by Wickham for their B team so basically for their development team in the summer and has been fast-tracked to the first team and is now you know he's Performing at championship level—that's a hell of a jump up from yeah. from, from from non-league. But an it, amazing. But it's
0: also—he looks like he has something that they don't really have in that part of the pitch as well. Uh, my my note here says he's only—that was only a sixth start in the league this season. Um, and and if they are to, you know, they have to go hell for leather now for for the last what seventeen games, and they have to have a bit more quality in order to cause teams problems. Iqbal is doing an unbelievable job, right? But Mametti feels like someone who given the technical level that he has, kind of has to start from here on in, even if he hasn't been a key player up to this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Um, And they're going to need players like that. And and then you look at Jason Knight as well, who has played in defence for the whole season, steps into midfield for the first time, rattles the bar early on and then gets the winner too, on loan from Leicester. Um, I guess, you know, you've got two players there in Knight and Mometi who don't really subscribe to the the view generally of Wickham you know you've got a Premier League low knee and you've got a, a a technically gifted wide player or midfield player plucked from non-league um it's it's exciting for Wickham I'm delighted for them that they got this win over the line I think Huddersfield felt like they could have had a penalty very late on um but let's not get into that this is Wickham's day Huddersfield have to do something soon they're on 33 points they're four points clear of the drop and they are dropping like a stone next up. They go to Borough midweek uh, and then they've got Swansea and then they've got Derby. So the, the games don't get any easier. And, well, they, don't, they I, don't get much easier than we can anyway. I was so. going to
0: say, I'd like to know who who could have been on the fixture list that you would have said, like, oh, that's easy at least. Um, I mean, there, there's no easy game for Corberan's for Huddersfield at the moment simply because... They are one of the softest teams I've covered in this league for an awfully long time, uh, especially from crosses, especially aerially. I mean, while occasionally playing some nice stuff uh, and admittedly earlier in the season, even more so, some really nice patterns of play going forward, some really encouraging attacking play. And I will I will stand by that, even if it's slightly less in evidence right now. I, I mean, there's a lot of people who who... Are saying that looking at the current performances, that you know relegation is a genuine threat, and therefore, in order to avoid that, will they need to make a change? I mean, it's a, it's certainly an interesting question, especially because the chairman himself was the one who made that you know bold call, binning off the Cowley brothers and getting Corbran in in the summer, and. Now it's a big decision for him to make. We see whether he's willing to back his own decision making and he's every right to if he thinks this man is the man for him and should have more time and could improve the club over the mid to long term or whether he basically gets too concerned about relegation would have to swallow his pride if he was going to make a change, that's for sure. I mean, I just can't understand how a squad... Can look like this 18 months after relegation from the Premier League. I cannot understand. I know there's been injuries and unfortunate, you know, unfortunate spells for for players being out. But I cannot understand how this team can have been put together with, um, you know, essentially with parachute payments that should elevate your spending power, your squad building power in that sense over um, the rest of the competition that you're up against. As for Wickham, yeah, safety still 10 points away. Um, with 18 games to go so plenty of work to do but life in the old dog I think it's fair to say um, next up we spoke to Conor Harahan and uh, I think we should get straight into it so here's Conor Harahan so so good to be joined by Conor Harahan a man that we've spoken about a lot on this podcast over the last few years uh, whether it was at Barnsley at Villa And now with Swansea uh, and we also spoke to you uh, in the first lockdown which now feels like a long time ago as part of our EFL completed series hearing your story your football journey I suppose but uh, today we just want to have a a good old chat about football about the championship so thanks for joining us Connor
2: no problem absolute pleasure thanks for having me again
0: the reason it came about is that I wanted to, to let you know that George and I had had given you a big up on Sky on Friday night in our segment so um, I sent you the clip and you said yeah yeah no mate I was watching that live I saw that don't worry I watch every single game that I can possibly watch and I was reminded that you really are an absolute football obsessive aren't you
2: yeah yeah I do watch a lot a lot of games I've got to be honest um, even more so now being in the flat away from the family but um, I did see that clip live um, and uh, hopefully Broughton is watching and listening, but uh, I've only turned 30 a, a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not too old just yet. <laughs> you're, not,
0: you're not even the oldest person on this call right now, so don't you worry. <laughs> Shut about, up, I'll take man. that. <laughs> nor, are, nor are you the youngest. Um, look, as you say, um, one of the reasons why uh, you're able to watch so much at the moment, of course, is that You're in Swansea, uh, as of January, you joined Swans on loan from Aston Villa. Uh, On a personal level, before we get into the football stuff, what is life like at the moment? Because changing your club, your scenery during a period of of national lockdown uh, and with a a new baby on the cards as well, um, pretty lively month or so for you.
2: Yeah, not not an easy decision I suppose listen, I, support, I, I, I wanted to play football, uh, as simple as that really, um, you know, new baby, and I've got another daughter as well, so to move down to, to Swansea wasn't an easy decision from a family point of view, but what I, I knew I kind of had to do um, from a football side of things, um, you know, one of the reasons why I would have moved, um, taking away the football aspect as well, is to to get my, myself in the best position possible come the summer for, you know, my kids, for my family, you know, for to, to, to make sure my, my career is still moving in the, in the right direction. So all factors, um, you know, taken, uh, I felt was the right thing to do. But um, yeah, in a lockdown down here and things aren't open, but a lot of games and a lot of training um, at the minute. So the days do pass by.
0: It was obviously an eye-catching transfer because of your performances with Villa in their promotion to the Premier League but also because as we discussed with you on EFL Completed your career up to that point had taken in League 2, League 1, Championship, Premier League. You've been a Premier League player for for over a year now and I think when you see how it's being reported and how Dean Smith discussed the fact that he wanted you really around because of the character and, and what you can add on the pitch but you were the one as you've said adamant that you just wanted to play football even if that meant dropping down a level. Yeah. I mean I suspect that there are a lot of players who especially during a period of lockdown, especially with a new baby and especially having reached the Premier League maybe a year or so ago, might have just kicked around, might have stayed and just maintained that status as being a Premier League player if not necessarily getting many minutes on the pitch. Like what is it about you where you yeah. just I remember you telling us you left Sunderland before you'd even basically played a senior game, because you just wanted to play football and you didn't think that was going to happen there. So this is yeah. a real theme for you.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it just didn't sit well with me to be sitting around at Villa. Yes, I might have been there. I was there four years and achieved, you know, a nice little a few bits with the club. And obviously, I have a fondness towards the club, of course. But I didn't see where it was. The, I didn't see it as a good. Thing to do for my career, career-wise, basically, um, you know, as I touched on earlier, just turned thirty, really eager and keen to try and, you know, achieve um, as much as I can before I finish. So sitting around at Aston Villa wasn't kind of on my list of things to do. To be honest with you, you know, growing up as a lad, um, my dream wasn't to train all week and not play on a Saturday. You know what I mean? It's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't sit well with me. It's just not me, you know. So. I thought what was what's the best thing for my family and my career um and I, I felt the right thing to do was to go out and play football. I had to be honest with myself as well and say I'm not really going to play here at Villa. And and that's mm. not an easy thing to admit, but you know, I'm I'm I feel like I'm a good honest guy and um you know, I I I'm, I don't shy away from honest conversations um and I had to face up to the fact that I wasn't going to play. So You know, um, taking that into a factor as well. I just felt it was the right thing to do and dropping down leagues and people saying, oh, you know, did you find it difficult to drop down? Not really, because I went from Sunderland-Ipswich all the way down to League 2, so it's no no different territory to me, if I'm being honest with you. It's Mm. dropping down to hopefully, um, you know, my further plan down the line to go back to the Premier League. That's what I want to do. And hopefully that will be the case. I mean, you're certainly left
0: with an enormous amount of good feeling. It's obviously just alone, but but the Villa fans who appreciate not only your, your role in promotion, but in 18 starts in the Premier League last season, including those last four games when the club secured survival and you started all four of those. You started the first two games of this season as well and uh, and then really haven't had much of an opportunity since then. When you made the decision to, to move in January, uh, what happened from that point? Uh, how, how did you learn of interest and... How many options did you have, really? Obviously you chose Swansea, but you know, yeah. did you have a, a couple of offers on the table?
2: Yeah, it, it was bubbling away, I suppose. I probably um, made the decision in my head anyway. Listen, there was talks between the club and for people that are probably listening and don't really know, it's not as easy as me saying to the manager, I'm going on loan. There's a lot of conversations <laughs> to be had. You know, it goes to the CEO, it goes to the probably the owners. You know, we're, we're in a pandemic, you know, we had the outbreak at the club, you know, so. But just before I left I thought, is that gonna ruin my chances of going? So there's a lot of things that that, that happens between, you know, starting the conversations and then ending up there in Swansea. Um I felt probably mid December t- coming towards the Christmas period, I wasn't playing again and I still wasn't kind of coming on in games and I felt, yeah, I'm gonna to have to leave here, I think. Um like I said, the club really were fantastic. There wasn't any kind of real tough, you know, loud voices, arguments or anything like that, you know what I mean, there was nothing like that, they know how much I I love playing the game and and want to succeed in my career and the journey I've had, so they were trying to support it as best they could, Um, they felt it was good value for me to go and loan and hopefully they'll add value to themselves come summer when it comes to business and let's see what happens, but um, yeah, in terms of um, chats and talks then, I didn't really want to go permanently, I I I didn't, you know, with money money i suppose first and foremost who, who could afford me you know clubs are struggling for cash like we say um so we felt loan was the best thing to do and, and um we'll see what happens in the summer and um swansea came calling um there was a few others bournemouth i suppose it's well documented they were probably the two closest clubs um and there was a couple of phone calls from from other clubs as well but um probably the most interest was swansea and bournemouth at the time really
0: and what an unbelievable First few weeks you've had uh, in the white of Swans or electric blue, uh, whatever colour that away kit is that you played in as well. Uh, Three goals in three games. You've played against the other two uh, of what looks like three teams gunning for two automatic promotion spots, although we know you can't say that so (laughs) early in the championship with the quality on show. But just talk me through the the arrival and being thrust straight into the games, the experiences so far at Swans.
2: Yeah, it's, um, it's it's obviously, listen, it started off really well and, you know, I'm really eager and, and hungry to for that to continue, um, obviously I came down here and, like I say, we were just after the outbreak in the club, so I hadn't trained really for 10 days, I was in isolation for 10 days, I'd, I'd got into Villa maybe for a couple of days before actually leaving um, and I knew on the horizon was a cup game against Forest um, on the Saturday, I think, and I was hoping to to get the loan deal over the line before that game because I thought that would be a nice kind of betting in game, get minutes under my belt. Um, I hadn't played in the FA Cup for, for Villa, so I wasn't cup-tied because of the whole outbreak. Like I say, they put out the, the younger lads against, against Liverpool, so I thought it was a perfect opportunity. And Swansea felt like that as well, that they wanted to get me down and playing in that game to get me going. Um, so luckily enough for myself, um, the deal got done maybe on the Wednesday or Thursday, I was ready to play by the Saturday against Forest and um, yeah it was, it was a great betting in game, got 65 minutes or so under my belt and um, kicked on from then really and uh, like I said yeah it started off well but you know you, you can never get complacent in this, in this game so you know hungry and, and working hard for more really.
1: Yeah kicked on well. Uh, just about covers it your first three games in the championship for Swansea and you've scored three goals two of those goals coming against Brentford in in, in an equaliser and against Norwich in a 2-0 win so not only have you scored big goals but they have been against the two teams that you are at the moment competing with for a place in the Premier League so what did you make of those two sides and it must have been a massive positive for for you and, and Swansea to come away unscathed from both yeah,
2: Brentford was a difficult, difficult game. They they were good on the night, to be fair. Um, you know, they played some good stuff, uh, moved the ball around really well. And I've always found Brentford difficult to play against over the years, not not just now at the minute. And um, they've always been a good passing side, even going back to when Dean was the manager there and and playing against them. Maybe when I was at Barnsley or whatever, they've always played the game in the right way, uh, in my opinion, anyway. Um, and then we went down to 10 men, of course, and, we, you know, me thinking on the, on the night, this could be a long, there was about 20 minutes left maybe or so. Um, went down to 10 men and I think everyone thought this is going to be a long 20 minutes, they're going to pass it about and create chances and whatever. Um, But I suppose when you're down to 10 men, one of the best ways to, to score is is probably from a set piece. It kind of levels levels it up a little bit and, you know, I felt it was an opportunity for me to swing in a good ball and, um, yeah, delighted to see it go in, of course. Um, Are you not
1: claiming a shot?
2: no no i'm afraid no well, i go back to honest conversations and i can't claim that was a shot no chance um but delighted to see it sailing it, it, it took i wouldn't say pressure off me but it 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 just makes you relax into the environment a lot a lot easier when you kind of come up with a big moment kind of so early into your time at a new club for anyone moving into a new club um and it's it's made. You know, the settling in period a lot, lot easier to come off the pitch and go into a dressing room that was buzzing in in my first league game, big game, as you said, against Brentford, and um, to kind of be the guy who's, you know, scored that goal as a new player. It, it was brilliant, and, and like I said, made that settling in period much, much easier.
1: Was there a bit of frustration that there weren't fans to see the next two? Because if the first was lucky against Brentford, the two strikes against Rotherham and Norwich couldn't really have been pure with that left peg.
2: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Um, I suppose especially against uh, Norwich would have been, you know, at the Liberty and, and and even the Brentford goal as well. It would have been at the Liberty and it would have been a, you know, big crowd and an important game and all the rest of it. So yeah, it would have been nice um, to have crowds in, but it would have been nice to have crowds in for a lot of games, you know, that I could have mentioned. You know, just going back to the staying up at Villa last year. You know, if there was crowds there, it would have been fantastic. But it is what it is at the at, at the minute. You have to make the most of the situation and. Yeah, like I said, um, hopefully I'll, I'll come up with a couple of more to keep this one's fans happy.
1: You've obviously had a very good relationship with Dean Smith at Villa. Um, talking of another manager now, and Steve Cooper, who you're playing under at Swansea, and I mean, I personally think it goes pretty. Undernoticed, noticed how good a job he's doing at Swansea mm-hmm. you think back to, to the job that Graham Potter did in keeping Swansea mid-table and that earned him a Premier League move you've got Steve yeah. Cooper in his first club management job in domestic football in just his second season having Swansea punching above their weight looking for an automatic return to the Premier League uh, how's he been to work with in the first few weeks?
2: Yeah he's been amazing he, he really has he's been an absolute you know breath of fresh air since, since I've come in you know the way he's handled me and the way I I look at the way he handles the group and he, he's been he's been terrific um you know the lads spoke so highly about him. I got a good vibe off him when he made a couple of phone calls to me to try and get me down to Swansea um the fit just felt right um how he came across in the phone call it didn't come across like you know a, a, a different character as a manager and a different character at home which a lot of people have that kind of work character and home character there was nothing like that um and uh, yeah he, he's been really good and, and his first impressions go so so impressive um, yeah I, I think you know I'm, we spoke off air a little bit I'm doing my badges at the minute and I'll definitely be looking at this time at the club at Swansea and looking in at at Steve and what he's doing and how he handles players and his man management I'll definitely be taking little bits and pieces from Steve's work because it, it's been really really good
1: uh, at the club, you know, Swansea, we spoke on Sky about how you're maybe a movement away from the normal recruitment policy and, and you're playing with a couple of really good players. I mean, at, at Villa, you've been lucky enough to play with some decent yeah. ones too. A certain wide player, player normally plays out on the left.
2: Too. Who's that? Who are you uh, just,
1: just the, Just the man who's going to win the Euros in the summer. Um, and, <laughs> For Ireland. <Oops>. But look, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, I think uh, so, mate. Yeah, I think so. But looking at, you know, Tyrone Mings, who might also be on the plane, uh, well, I mean, I think they're going to be staying in, in England for the most part, but but yeah. also Esri Concer, who's been linked in mm. the Athletic this morning for a call-up as well. You know, you look at the Swansea side, again, a couple of centre-backs in, in Ben Kabango, and Mark Gwehi, who are really impressive young players and and, and who are part of this defence who have the best record in the Championship and could well go on to set a new record if they carry on the way that they are at the moment. So how have you been impressed with those two players? Freddie Woodman as well, of course, a really promising keeper.
2: Yeah, do you know what? They're they're both very, very good in their own right and both been very, very impressive. Um, Mark stands out to me a little bit just because... He's probably played in all the games I've played in. Ben probably played in a couple and not in another couple. Mark's been really impressive. Um, strong, quick, playing on the wrong side as well of a three for you know his right footer and coming back into the play makes it look so easy. Um, and for lad, Ladd, you know, so young and to have that kind of defensive record as you've uh, spoken about, he's been really, really impressive. Ben has as well. Freddie's been brilliant. But there's been a good mix as well, you know, um, Mark's got Ryan Bennett usually to him on the right hand side in the centre of that three and then he's got Jake Bidwell another experienced lad kind of looking after him as well to the, to the left of him and um, Ben plays kind of on the right hand side he's got Connor Roberts who's quite experienced and then he's obviously got Benno to the left of him as that centre so they seem to be you know a good mix and to the left and to the right of these guys there was a, an experienced head as well so um, there, there just seems to be a nice balance and a nice mix about you know the way Steve set his team up between experience, um, youth. Um, so yeah, things moving in the right direction. But like you said, the three lads that you've spoken about, the young, them being kind of um, English and young and whatever, they're 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 all very impressive in their own right and have a bright future in the game, definitely.
1: You're you're someone who, as a player, has experienced a lot of. Um, you know, you've achieved a lot in the game, as we spoke about on that EFL completed last summer. You've also been a part of a side who've lost to Wembley in an attempt to get up to the Premier League as well. So you've you've had the highs and the lows, I guess, in terms of trying to do that. You're coming into a side now who, as we mentioned, have a fairly inexperienced manager, a fairly inexperienced squad of players. Is there anything you're doing kind of deliberately in order to try and use your experience and use what you've been through in order to help you guys be successful in this promotion attempt?
2: Um, Not really at the minute, I suppose. I suppose you know the manager obviously spoke about my promo- like couple of promotions I've got, and that would be important to the group and the know how to try and get over the line. Um, listen, I've had two promotions, but they've both been through the playoffs for me. So you know, I'm I'm kind of relatively new-ish to hoping to go up in the top two. But I suppose the group last year and the manager obviously got beaten the playoffs, and they will have taken a lot from that. And it looks like they have. They've kind of um, you know gone about it in the right way and looked back and evaluated on maybe why they didn't make it maybe to the top two because um, they obviously got in relatively late in the season didn't they last year um, so the defensive record and their set pieces have been a massive one I'm not saying they had a bad record last year at all but they've really upped it from that point of view um, and really tightened up and like you said they, you know the record at the minute's fantastic um, and I suppose just learning on the job and learning from the experience of last year and you know bouncing questions off me now and again um and trying to bring out my playing on on, on the field is is the most i would say you know trying to you know bring that quality um bring that little bit maybe in the top half of the pitch that i've always been relatively decent at over the course of my career um to try and win games because like i said over the over the course of my career it's always been how many goals and assists can i get to make myself stand out from other players you know i'm not you know physically the biggest i probably don't break play up the best you know i not the quickest at all so over the course of the last five six years I've always said to myself how can I stand out from others and it's always been goals and assists so hopefully moving forward in the next coming months I can keep bringing that to the team.
0: What I found interesting thinking about you know your various different roles over the years at Argyle, at Barnsley, at Villa uh, always in the centre of the park but quite often as a very advanced midfielder in a three sometimes Uh, At Villa, you know, you you had a bit more defensive responsibility to provide that base and to progress the ball, uh, you know, pick it up off the defence sometimes. Yeah, I can't imagine just off the top of my head that you've played in in too many three-at-the-back systems like you're playing in at Swansea now. So I just wondered what it's been like for you you know having had a, a 10 year career now playing yeah. in a, a slightly different shape and what do you in your current role have to do differently or think about differently now you've got wing backs overlapping you maybe rather than two you know a full back and a winger uh, and maybe maybe with you you kind of feel like the biggest goal threat of the midfield 3 that you're playing yeah. in at the moment so it must be quite nice to know that you can really kick on and you know dive into the box and yeah. you know you've got you've got plenty backing up behind you
2: yeah, yeah, you're back on there. I, I haven't really played um for a sustained amount of games in a three. I might, managers might have dipped in and out of it for a game or two. I'll be honest with you, I can think of a couple of games when I've managers have dipped in and out of it and it hasn't gone well and they've reverted straight away, get, get away from it kind of thing. Um, so But it, in this team, it's been relatively, really easy to slip into. First and foremost, because we play with a one and a two, one sitter and two eights. And that's what I did at Villa. So that it, from that point of view that makes my life a lot lot easier so the roles from a 1 and a 2 isn't really that different if you're playing a 433 three. um the only one i would say is that the eights kind of release to the full backs sometimes the the, the wing backs get penned back a little bit and obviously you don't have a winger so you have to be the one to kind of release um he doesn't really want the strikers doing it and then becoming kind of too far back um in their, their own in their own kind of half defensive third. They want he wants to keep the strikers higher up the pitch so that would be the only one I can think off the top of my head where the higher the full backs um advance from the opposition, the eights have to get out and close the space. Um, but from an attacking point of view, real license to get forward and get in around the box, which is music to my ears, because you do have three centre backs behind you, you know, so there is security there to really um be that person to get forward, try and get in the end of things, makes things happen in the final third. Um, so from that point of view, there's there's a nice balance that, you know, my main job is to try and create and be more advanced out of the three that's in there. So it's brilliant for me.
1: Connor, before we let you go, because we know that you're enjoying your football at the moment, and then there's header of MNF, which started five minutes <laughs> yeah, ago, no, so yeah, we'll I'm let you get back here. to it. <laughs> no, <I'm> good, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll have a lot of Plymouth Argyle and a lot of Barnsley fans listening uh, to this because you are still a very popular player there, and that was certainly the case. Um, you know, the reaction from from both sets of fans last summer when we did the pub with you was was massive. Um, and it must be great for you to see both sides, both clubs, in such good positions at the moment. You know, Argyle, a side yeah. who had their off-field issues when you were there, now looking very good both on and off the pitch, and Barnsley under Valerian Ishmael after that amazing escape last season, you know, taking on a couple of decent West London sides uh, and doing you a favour, certainly on Saturday, yeah. uh, Sorry, on Sunday as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, listen... Um they're they're both doing fantastically well, Plymouth obviously when I was there had, had a lot of problems off the pitch and was um, was kind of getting to grips of it when I left, um, you know the manager there has obviously signed a new four-year deal recently or a new long-term deal anyway and um, they seem to be moving in the right direction which is fantastic, great football club, um, you know like I said getting back to somewhere where they should be in my opinion, you know when I was there it was League Two and you know the club is too big for for, for League Two, it, you know they're they're a well-established team, you know, championship minimum league one, so it's great to see them moving well, and Barnsley, yeah, listen, you know, s- such a fan club to myself, um, you know, the club are moving in the right direction as well, I'd love if they got an outside chance of making the playoffs, and they do have the outside chance, will they make it or not, it may be difficult, but if they keep bringing results like that to the, to the table against Brentford, you never, never know, but um, yeah, you know, huge fan memories with both clubs, and uh yeah, keep looking out for their scores all the time. Every weekend, they're, they're the two scores I look for. Um, you know, one, you know, Barnsley and, and Plymouth. Uh, after the games, I play.
1: Be careful what you wish for, Connor. Because what if? you <laughs> I guys know. Finished I was third, thinking, uh, Barnsley finish seventh. <laughs> I know,
2: yeah, and we we miss out. You never, never know. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed, we may make the top two. Listen, it, it there's a long way to go, and um, there's going to be twists and turns. You can't get too excited or too low with the, the way the results are going at the minute. You know, I think we've got 19 games to go because we've got a couple in hand. Other teams have got, you know, 17, 18, whatever it may be. But, um, you know, exciting few months ahead and um, one as a player that you really want to be involved in. Like I said, going back to this is why I came here, you know, to be involved in that promotion chase, better than sitting around at Aston Villa, that's for sure.
0: Connor, I've just got one really random question before we let you go. Um, Because I'm a bit of a squad number purist. Yeah. This is super weird, but uh, when you made your Ireland debut... 2017 yeah. against iceland yeah you were wearing number three
2: i was you're right yeah you what st- ha- did they yeah. think
0: you're a left back
2: <laughs> <laughs> do you know i actually don't have an answer for you i really really don't um it was one of them bizarre moments when i walked into the dressing room i got told the night before i was making my debut for Ireland, and i was like what a moment you know i've worked so hard to you know a goal that i've always wanted to take off make my moment yeah kind of make my debut, sorry, and um, I walked into the dressing room, and we didn't know the team, but I got tipped off that we were, I was playing, right. and I walked in, and I was like, I'm not playing left back, am I? <laughs> Cause, and I was like, surely not, I can't be playing left back, and I, suddenly the nerves went through the roof, I couldn't, because obviously you get into the dressing room, you know, you might walk out onto the pitch, and the way Martin, Martin O'Neill was the manager at the time worked, he named this team relatively late, um, didn't name it the night before but because it was my debut he may wanted to tip me off or whatever to settle the nerves as best as possible and uh, I thought no way I can't be left back but <laughs> lo and behold I ended up as a centre mid so all, all, all well Listen, we didn't get the result on the night but um, yeah no a, a fun jersey to me but I don't have it up on the wall because everyone thinks number three on the wall I'm not sure about that <laughs> but, um, but yeah no it, it's, uh, it's a fun one of course.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time on a Monday night. Um, we've been loving watching you, uh, obviously back in the championship, and hopefully you get as as, as good an appetite for talking to us on podcast as you do for playing football. Because um, we, we've loved chatting to you, and, and hopefully we can do so again soon.
2: Yeah, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me, and all the best with the work you're doing. It's been it's been great to watch.
0: Cheers, thank you. We'll see you again on Friday night, 10.15 on Sky. <laughs>
2: Keep putting the good words. <laughs> All right, buddy, thank you. Cheers, guys, Cheers. thank you.
0: Okay, in League One, we got to start with what I think might be a world record, you know, a world first, George, because Sunderland played Doncaster on the weekend, Donny above Sunderland in the table, looking to impose themselves. And instead, what happened was... Aidan McGeady assisted four goals and Charlie Wyke scored four goals all with his head from McGeady Crosses. (laughs) Cross, head, score, repeat, as the Quest commentator said, which I thought was quite a nice (laughs) I
1: mean, this is absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? It is. It is unbelievable. Yes. Yes. I mean, especially in a game where um, the away side missed two penalties and that's not, it's not even noteworthy here. Um, yeah, absolutely incredible. I mean, it shows just how good Aiden McGeady is, um, that he's able to get on the ball in these areas. So consistently get his head up and put the ball on on the bonds of, uh, of, of Charlie White consistently. Uh, I mean, if you are um, Butler or right, the, the Doncaster centre-backs, you've got to be thinking to yourself, like, how have we let this happen? How you know, surely after two, after three, you're looking at McGeady when he's on the ball out on that left-hand channel, and you're thinking to yourself, right, where is he? <laughs> um, but consistently wasn't the case. Um, some really poor defensive work as well in terms of defensive shape for um a couple that should have been offside, but the fullbacks um, you know, not in line with their centre backs and keeping him on. And for for Sunderland, you know, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a brilliant Sunderland performance. It wasn't necessarily an amazing Donny performance. Donny, sorry, it wasn't necessarily a particularly poor Donny performance, except for that. You know, they still created a fair deal at the stadium of light. Um, Sunderland didn't create too much except for those, uh, those, those four headers. But, you know, when you're three 0 up after, after half an hour, you don't really need to do much more. So um, again, in the same way, I guess that with Watford, they can use that, that result as a catalyst. Sunderland's, you know, dispatching a side who are up at the top of the table um, Will further, you know, show them and their their fans that they still think. I mean, certainly the um, the narrative around Sunderland fans at the moment is um, is the automatics is still on the cards and more results and performances. Well, not necessarily performances, sorry, more results like that. And and you know, you can see why.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're in sixth spot in that last playoff spot at the moment. On the old points per game, they are, I think, eighth or ninth. So they definitely have a lot of work to do if they're to to even reach the playoffs, let alone the top two. But if Charlie White continues on this run of form, he's got 10 goals in his last eight games and he's flown to the top of the League One top goal scorer chart. See you later, Luke Jeffka um Sunderland ironically haven't had a striker looking this deadly since Josh Madger's spell in in the 2018-19 season and uh, of course there he is scoring two for Fulham in the Premier League now uh, a couple of years later um there's there's another interesting piece on the Athletic about Sunderland actually and it's it's mainly I found it really good detail uh, about the takeover um Cyril Louis-Dreyfus was at the game, he would have enjoyed watching uh, what I think is a world record, um, four assists, four-headed goals. Um, And yeah, some some good detail in this piece by Michael Walker and Phil Buckingham uh, on the Athletic site, which I would recommend reading. Um, In terms of the new chap, I mean, he's very young, isn't he? He's he's in his sort of early mid-twenties, exceptionally rich Frenchman whose family used to own Marseille and who's kind of grown up. In and around the, the Marseille uh, club and operation. Uh, and there's a quote in here which says he will be hands on. He'll be in regular contact with Johnson and Speakman. Louis Dreyfus will be inv- involved in the appointments of a new academy manager and head of recruitment. Those are expected to come inside the next month. A heavy emphasis will be placed upon data and analytics as plans are drawn up for what is hoped to be a transformative summer transfer window. 18 of the current squad are not currently under contract for 21-22. So as always, Sunderland a really interesting case at the moment. Um, no matter what happens in the next few months, uh, there's big changes afoot. And yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged by what feels like um, a modernization of the, the, the operating of the club. It doesn't mean that it's going to work. Um, you know, using data and analytics is it sounds great, but you have to use them well. Um, and that's the next step. But I'm I, I've been impressed with uh, Speakman uh, since his appointment. Every time I've heard him speak, uh, and Lee Johnson as well. We we know is he's he's not getting unbelievable results so far. I just still think that there's a streak on the horizon for streaky wins. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Um, we spoke about Yellow's wigging at the top of the game. Uh, Yellow's coming from behind to win that one. I watched Hull uh, nil MK Dons one on Saturday. I really enjoyed it. Actually, it was a really interesting game of kind of. It was a bit of a cat and mouse game um, because, in the first half, certainly MK Dons had maybe 65% of the possession, um, but they weren't really creating any particularly good opportunities. And Hull were looking very dangerous when they were springing on the counter attack, but couldn't quite get the job done. Uh, and then, in the end, you know, in what was a pretty even game, I think, overall, um, and two teams who I think played quite well, uh, it was a penalty what done it. Um, I mean it, it was a handball to me the arms were up but it seemed a bit unfortunate more than anything um, but what a, what a signing Harry Darling looks to have been at the, at the heart of the defence for MK Dons signed from Cambridge in January and looks like a magnificent signing um, I, I note that Dean Lewington approaching 800 games for this club and uh, looks as good as ever uh, I also watched Plymouth Fleetwood which I must say was much less entertaining um, Argyle getting the win and they were the better side they were the better side I think crucially for Argyle because I'm pretty excited about them going forward. Um, There's a bit of a bottleneck at the top of the division, so I'm not expecting MK Dons or Argyle to make the playoffs, but I'm expecting them both to finish very strongly based on what I'm seeing at the moment. Argyle have got five clean sheets in their last 11 games, uh, having got only two in their first 17. So that's the sort of thing where if they can continue that, um, that tightening up at the back, well, they're always pretty good going forward, aren't they? They always create plenty of chances, and they've got the strikers we think... In Jeff And then uh, Hardy and Ennis, to a lesser extent, who can finish them. So definitely two teams to watch. Um, Charlton two, Gillingham three. I feel like Charlton, George have like, they've got some weird curse at the moment where, I mean, some of the stats are absolutely remarkable. They've conceded two goals or more in their last seven home games in the league. They haven't won, I don't think, in that time. So really struggling at the Valley. But every time I, I watch a game at the Valley with the highlights, it feels like there's one or two absolute worldies going in that Charlton net. So I do feel a little bit bad for Ben Amos and for Lee Bowyer, I suppose. But that doesn't get away from the fact that they are certainly not, that they're just not in great nick at the
1: moment. One thing I've learned today, Ali, is to <clears throat> definitely check with the data before anecdotal um musings after tweeting that there seems to be more mistakes this season than last and then everyone telling me that actually there've been way fewer um so <laughs> what
0: sort <laughs> we'll what find. sort of mistakes are you talking about
1: goalkeeping mistakes it has struck me that I was seeing more and more often but apparently that's not the case um so I, I wished I'd checked beforehand um but no I, I mean I know what you mean it does feel like Charlton are finding almost different ways to to lose games whether it's opposition goals uh, wonder goals whether it's sendings off um it does feel like their games have become fairly hectic now you know I think last time we saw Charlton in, in this league under Lee Bowyer um they were fairly um controlled controlled yeah I mean they won games to nil fairly often games are pretty low scoring they now seem fairly incapable of preventing the opposition from having a fair few chances irrespective of, of who they're playing unless as we saw the other day I think it was Rochdale where they managed to shut up shop pretty well um and that's going to be frustrating. They are undergoing a massive time of change on and off the pitch. And I wonder if that is partly why we're seeing some instability on the pitch. Um, but this was a result I didn't really expect. Uh, I, I thought the way that they saw that game out um, beforehand meant that we were maybe going to see a different Charlton, uh, but the same ugly one reared its head. And and maybe, I think we just need to see some calm there. I guess a, a return to to a, to more measured performances, more measured games um and maybe a less kind of gung-ho approach
0: it's, it's hard just going off post-match interviews because it definitely doesn't give the full snapshot but that really is all we can go off and mm. you talk about the need for calm i completely agree um but it's not settling down is it it's been the case for a while and i don't no. think like like i do find boya's post-match interviews just like n- n- i wouldn't say he's exa- he's Well, no, he is exasperated. That's exactly what he is. And I don't think that um, as the image that you project, that's necessarily helping. Um, I can understand why he might be pulling his hair out. There was a period where the defensive individual errors were unbelievable. And now there's a period where they seem to be conceding worldies left, right and centre. But Mm. yeah, I I think the calmness kind of has to come from him. And at the moment, I'm not seeing a huge amount of that. Uh, There was a huge game down at the bottom uh, as well between Northampton and Burton. Northampton had sat Keith Curl in the week. Um, You know, a classic case, I think, of him masterminding an unbelievable achievement to be promoted through the playoffs when we didn't see that coming at all. And basically kind of being the orchestrator of his own downfall because... I didn't think the way that Northampton played under Keith Curl and with the players at his disposal and specifically the players that he lost in the summer as well, who were so key to that promotion, I just couldn't see how they would really sustain any sort of you know high, high performance levels to be outside of the uh, relegation battle. So, I mean, in the one hand, it, it feels harsh. On the other hand, I feel like in order to have a little punt to try and stay at this level where I'm not sure they necessarily you know, deserve to be based on their performances overall last season. I guess I can kind of see, see why you would do it, but it remains to be seen who they bring in. The caretaker moved away from curls, uh, mysterious curls, um, <laughs> three, uh, three at the back system. He wanted a bit more attacking intent. Mark Marshall came in, played out wide. Uh, he, he's he been out in the cold and they started with some intent. But again, like last week when Burton beat Hull City, this Burton side, very comfortable out of possession keeping the opposition at bay for the most part. And with a bit more squad depth and quality, they're getting stronger as the game goes on, George, and they got the win.
1: Yeah, they did. Um, I Having spoken a lot about Brewers and how I thought this was going to be a turning point, I was a bit concerned when the first 15 minutes all went cobbler's way <laughs> um, and they hit the bar and they kept going to... I can't remember who it was in the um, in the stands. Uh, it was a Cammy, but they kept going to him and it was like, yeah, Northampton still well on top here and slowly... We saw um Burton's new qualities start to shine through. And and this is such an important win for them. You know, we talk about Wickham and their win. This is a Burton side who who were similarly detached and, and are now clawing their way back into the um into the mix again. Sean Clare getting the assist for the first. So again seeing a new addition uh putting himself right into the, you know, into the important areas that he needs to be in order to to try and keep Burton up. Um uh, park hitting the post as well early on. And I think for, for Hasselbank, it's just a case of riding this wave for as long as possible. It's a case of just getting as many points to the ball because the chances are this run probably isn't going to continue. They've won two games in a row. They're unbeaten in four. Um, but they've got a Oh no, So they, they lost to, to Ipswich. So they, they've won three of their last four. But they've got to just find a way to, to get as many points on the board at the moment because they, they definitely have the quality in terms of personnel to get out of it and maybe when the results do start to turn because there'll be a difficult point between now and the end of the season they've got to put themselves in a position where they've leapfrogged a couple of other ones and it's and it's up for those those teams to chase them down.
0: Yeah, Northampton themselves have failed to score in 9 of their last 12 games. So clear where an improvement needs to come. Uh, I'm I'm not that confident that it will if I'm completely honest with you. Some managerial news of sorts in League One is that uh, Kenny Jackett, Portsmouth manager, uh, is not going to attend matches or training from Thursday while he rests and recovers from an operation. Uh, he's due to have a mole removed from his forearm, so we, we really wish him well and, and strong recovery. Assistant manager Joe Gallant uh, is going to be in charge in caretaker capacity. They've got a game against. Bristol Rovers, Uh, Kenny Jackett said the information I've been given is that I'll need about two weeks rest and recuperation after the operation. Uh, It's a big period for us, and it's a precautionary and elective surgery on my part. Uh, I feel very positive and confident in the procedure ahead, so that's really positive. Of course, Shrewsbury have been without their manager Steve Cotterill. Some news from him last Thursday: Aaron Wilbraham had revealed that he has been placed on a three-day steroid drip to improve his. COVID 19 condition as he continues to fight the virus. So, certainly not out of the woods yet, Steve Cottrell, and, and someone else for whom, you know, there, there's, there's been some fantastic coverage of the good run of form that Shrewsbury are in, Steve Cottrell's contribution to that, essentially from his hospital bed uh, on speakerphone at half time and stuff. Um, but I think well over and above that, just uh, I think there can, needs to be continued appreciation of what he's been going through, and uh, and sort of well wishes that his health yeah. that his health improves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's incredible what Shrewsbury are managing to do during this time of. Of, of yeah, just really difficult time for their manager. Um, I think we all had hoped and heard that that he was going to be getting out soon, but, um, but yeah, fingers crossed. There's some there's some good news in the cases of both Kenny Jackett and uh, and Steve Cotterill fairly soon.
0: Okay, League Two, barely anything happened. Right, um, there was a draw between Mansfield and Colchester on Sunday. Uh, Cambridge, the league leaders, had a pretty poor week. You have to say they lost four one to Salford and then they drew nil all at home to lowly south end. There was a good Bolton win. I say a good Bolton win, I don't think it was a classic performance, but they beat Stevenage, that is a fact one nil um, <laughs> can't and,
1: take that away from them
0: yeah and Declan John's performance was brilliant uh, attacking fullback he scored his first goal in English league football a really nice strike on his right foot uh, from the left wing back good pace really attack minded and I think could bring them an extra dimension as well but George there is managerial news in league two and mm. it's kind of uh, you know kind of fun in a weird way because it's just a, a head scratcher quite peculiar and com- came completely out of the blue earlier today.
1: Yeah, out of nowhere, reports that Daryl Clark was set to quit Walsall to take on another managerial job came out um, and, and were verified pretty quickly. And naturally, um, you know, including myself, certain people assumed it would be Bristol Rovers he'd be going back to, you know, where he made his name as a manager, where he had some, some really good times. But that was quickly um, rubbished by local media. Then Cobblers seemed to be the next obvious suggestion. And without their really... this day and age just never really happens without there really being a leak suddenly Port Vale just tweeted a picture of Daryl Clark wearing Port Vale tracksuits announcing him as manager um which I know that Walsall fans will disagree with this because you know it's it's quite clear to see that he hasn't done a great deal at the club but it it still strikes me as a bit of a coup I think having a managerial duo of of Flitcroft who's director of football uh and Daryl Clark is that's a lot of that's a lot of League 1 and League 2 fixtures managed in those two. That's a lot of knowledge about the leagues and the players in it. It's a lot of knowledge about how to get clubs towards the top end of this table. It's pretty impossible to to not think that having those two in charge of footballing affairs isn't a pretty hefty step up on, on Neil Askey. Um, the report seems to suggest that he has a a personal relationship, which I guess we can just call a friendship, with um, with Flitcroft, which, which would su- you know, explain the link to an extent. I don't really know where it leaves Walsall. Um, you know, they lost um Adebayo, um in January, they're their kind of key striker and now they've Zach, lost their manager.
0: Zach Jules as well.
1: And Zach Jules uh, to MK Dons. So they're not in a great position. They're they're six points off the playoffs still, but but it's hard to see them breaking into that. Um and Daryl Clark obviously looked at the the veil project and the way they're going about it. I mean I, I tweeted saying it was interesting because I remember when when you um, interviewed Daryl Clark, it was pretty stark and, and obvious to see how much of an input he had on all things Bristol Rovers beyond just playing. You know, he was talking about the club itself and and how he felt that he was responsible for for quite a lot of things that were going on off the pitch. So interesting that he decided to take on a role, not only with a director of football, but a director of football who has been a manager um, since since he retired. So you would you would anticipate would have a fair bit to say on managerial affairs so interesting to see how that gets on
0: yeah yeah fascinating appointment i just i've got such a problem an obsession with um with uh, efl training wear that as soon as you said there are pictures of daryl clark in a Port Vale tracksuit, i had to go and check it out while you were talking and <laughs> i can only see the top basically the shoulders and the crest and i can't work out if it's absolutely disgusting or whether i'll probably end up spending 40 quid on it plus postage and packaging and uh cruise around southwest london in a in a Port Vale area tracksuit uh, we'll Lovely. find out but i'm looking forward to seeing how Daryl gets on at uh, at vale um and yeah i'm not 100% sure where it leaves walsall i'm still reeling from the news myself because i've been recording all afternoon and I haven't really been across it so we will discuss walsall's managerial search uh, in due course in length hopefully p- potentially on thursday's totally football league show extra time i uh, hope you'll join us on that podcast make sure you're subscribed to it uh, and hopefully you've enjoyed this monday podcast with a bit of bonus conor harahan just really really uh wow what a treat what an honor uh, to have him on the pod chatting football um shame not to get... honor harahan and yeah honor harahan well done george that's a nice way to finish uh, have a great week everyone we'll talk again on thursday